We read together to remind us of where we are going, that is towards Jesus, allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. Jesus replied, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Church. We're really glad you're with us in the room and online. Uh, we're beginning a brand new collection of sermons today entitled The Practice of Scripture. So if you have a copy of Scripture with me, join me in Mark 12. And uh, Mark 12 and let's say, what's the other verse? 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. That's where we're going to go here in a little bit. While you're kind of finding your way there, let me give you a couple things that are going to be real helpful and practical over the next five weeks. Number one, um, if you have something to take notes with, deeply, deeply encourage you to take notes. There is going to be plenty of moments where I will be preaching, get in my preach on, where you'll want to say amen and uh-huh and keep going, all those good things. But there is going to be a ton of teaching and instruction. I'm going to break down and give some real practical, some even academic um, understanding as we unpack what does it look like to read the Bible, study the Bible, what does it mean, why can we trust it. We're going to get into some things that are really going to ground your faith over the next few weeks. So I really want to encourage you to, to bring some notes. Um, the other thing is on the central hub, faithchurchks.org, uh, you will find a card that says sermon notes. There will be a spot there for you to kind of follow along, take notes. But at the top in that area, I am listing several resources that not only have been helpful in forming some of these thoughts and things that I'll be bringing over the next few weeks, but also some great resources to help you dive in, you to be a student of God's word, and you to grow in this understanding and things. So it's going to be really, really helpful for you. And uh, those resources are going to be listed in that same sermon card each week. Uh, but then when this collection is over, they are gone. So get them while they last, all right? You want to make sure you grab onto those. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit today uh, about the Bible. Why can we trust it? What is it? How did we get the Bible? And what are some key objections that people have as it relates to trusting and relying on Scripture? Uh, Mark 12, 29, we read it just a minute ago. This is kind of our theme verse for the entire year. We've been looking at this verse again and again and again. It says, Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, or O people of God. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your, somebody say heart, with all your soul, somebody say soul, with all your mind, somebody say mind, and with all your strength. There you go. And the second is equally important. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. No other commandment is greater than these, this is all kind of in one commandment, not two, but really one seamless thought. And we've been looking at how do we love God with all of our heart. We talked about the practice of worship. 
How do we love God with all of our soul? That's the practice of prayer. How do we love God with all of our mind? That's the practice of scripture. We're going to get into that over the next five weeks. How do we love God with all of our strength? That's our obedience to the teachings and the way of Jesus. And then, of course, last, uh, last several weeks, we just finished up talking about how do you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and that's the practice of hospitality, caring and being kind and hospitable to the people around us. Loving God with all of our mind is when we begin to grow in our understanding and knowledge of God the story of God, the story of his people, and the teachings that change and that we orient our lives to known as the Bible or scriptures. This has been the central of so much of uh, Christian thought and the early church from the beginning of time, starting all the way back with the, the law that was passed on and then the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew scriptures that they held to and oriented to that Jesus himself studied and knew and memorized and was well acquainted with and taught about and taught from and everything linked and was connected to those things. And then as Jesus went about in teaching, his disciples carried it on and the apostles were deputized to kind of write and, and, and scribble out these things and they put together this collection of what we have now as our holy scriptures. And um, there are really two kind of uh, opposing camps sometimes. There, there are a lot of um, questions that people have about Bible, a lot of a lot of hurdles and personal things, some things that, that you might relate to. But I, but I find two really interesting ones that I want to highlight for just a minute. One thought is uh, you'll hear people who would say that they tend to, to be more, more of an intellectual, academic mind, people who, 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 who uh, have educated themselves beyond belief at this point in their life, people that would maybe have some affinity for the atheism or agnosticism, and they would say things like, those who carry a Bible are just simple, uneducated, and foolish. That a belief in a system like the Bible is just a crutch to help you through life because you are too weak and, and simple-minded to live on your own. But then on the flip side, you have the same people who uh, would be find themselves in that same category will say things like, not only is it the Bible, the intellectuals say it's too simple, it's for the foolish, but then you have people who would identify themselves as Christ followers. They would say things like, I can't understand it, it's too complex. So it's too simple and it's too complex and somewhere in the middle we find ourselves in these two opposing thoughts and ideas. These are not the only views or objections around the Bible. We're going to explore many of them over the next five weeks. Yet both of these groups can, if they choose to, whether they would find themselves more on the, it's too simple, that's not, I don't need it, I'm too smart for that, it doesn't make sense, there's too many logical objections, or those that are like, I can't read it, I don't understand it, I don't know how to, how to study it, I, it's just, I, I read it and it doesn't do anything for me. No, no matter kind of where people would be at on the spectrum themselves, I think it's interesting that as humans, we have the capacity to learn really complex things like math and algebraic formulas. We have, we have the ability to read intricate housing agreements and legal jargon. We, we read scores of political uh, news and bills that are on the Senate floor, and we understand it and can articulate it and can argue them. We make the complexities of engineering sound so incredibly simple on a YouTube video, and we can understand the variables of the human immune system, but yet something like Scripture is too complicated or not knowledgeable enough. I think 
There are many of us in this room, part of your journey has been answering some of the skeptical questions about the Bible. I don't believe that when we come to the Bible, we need to turn our brain off. I don't think when we need to come to the Bible, we need to turn our imagination off. I don't think when we come to the Bible that we need to think it's God or science. I think those things are in a symbiotic relationship. They are one and the same. In fact, the more we learn about science, the more we discover God was right. The more we're discovering about the human body, the more we understand that something about scripture is right. Something like, just take the simple understanding that a merry heart does good like medicine. In other words, laughter is good for your heart. Science has come along and says, no, no, really. When you're feeling depressed, what you really need to do is laugh a little bit because it's good for you. Something chemically in your brain takes place when you smile. Turn to your neighbor and release some of those good vibes into your brain and smile at them, would you? It's not that the objections are wrong. It's not that our doubts are invalid. It's not that our questions or even the academic thought process and critical thinking are invaluable. No, I think that all of those things are there and there are reasonable and intellectual and academic and deeply personal and profound reasons for the practice of Scripture. And I want to take over the next five weeks, these last five Sundays that we will gather in person in 2021. That's right, there are five more left. I want you, I want to help you fall in love with the Bible. I want to help you learn how when you open the Bible, you can understand what it means and have resources to help you understand what it's saying and why it matters not just then, but for you today. I'm going to show you how to do interpretation correctly so that you're not taking a scripture out of context and using it for your selfish desires, but rather you're allowing it to shape and form your own life and it impacts everything that you do. I want it to be something that helps you love God with all of your mind. Helps you love God with all of your, your mind. I don't want to just give you some fish. I want to teach you how to fish. Now, that is completely metaphoric because I can't actually teach you anything about fishing. So I'm thankful for my father-in-law who can teach my son how to fish because I've got nothing for him in that department. You want to talk about stats for Cam Newton? I can rattle those off all day long, but I don't know nothing about fishing. Some questions that I want us to answer together today. You're going to find answers to these throughout today's message, things like, what is the Bible exactly? Why and or how can I trust the Bible? What about all the different translations of the Bible? Can we trust them all? Should we trust them all? Where do they fall into our understanding? Does the Bible even contain errors in them? We're going to answer some of these questions. Now, on the onset, I, I want you to understand something. I, I have a bit of a thesis working thought in this collection. And that's simply this, that I believe that, the, that knowledge leads us to understanding. I believe that understanding leads us to wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the applied knowledge that we understand. It leads to application or, or wisdom. I believe wisdom leads us to being formed and formation ultimately helps us be transformed because the Bible is alive. 
It, it has some living component. It does something to us. It's activating something within us. And it's not just knowledge, factual things that we need to grab a hold of, but it's that, that knowledge that leads us to understand something about God and the ways of God and the people of God and the story of God and how you fit into the story of God and how you don't fit into the story of God. You think your life is a story about you. It's not. It's a story about God. You just happen to play a role in the story about God. Amen. Knowledge leads us to understanding. Understanding leads us to wisdom. And wisdom, when we apply it and live it, starts to form something new in us. And once it's formed, it helps us ultimately experience the work of the Spirit in our lives, and we become transformed by the renewing of our mind, the, the knowledge. It's the practice of Scripture. It's loving God with all of our mind. Now, I've been studying the Bible for a lot of, a lot of years, and there's still things that I'm learning and knowing and growing. I don't have all knowledge to give you. There are questions I, I might not be able to answer. I, I recognize that. But I think if we can all posture our hearts in a place of learning, there might be a something that we begin to know and understand more readily. The, the Bible is a collection of inspired writings given to us so that we may know the one true God. The Bible tells us the story of God, his rescue of humanity and his people, his redeeming covenant that's going to recreate and restore all of creation. I believe that the Bible that we have is the Bible that God wanted us to have. Could God have added more? Should there have been? He could have, but he gave us what we needed. He gave us what he wanted us to have. And I think God wanted you and he wants me to know him personally. And knowing him personally also involves our mind being engaged in that process. So God shares his story with us. It's revealed in the history of humanity. Today I want to look at kind of two main categories of objections that people have as it relates to the Bible. Objection number one is the authenticity of scripture. Objection number two is the authority of scripture. But let's hang out right here on the authenticity of scripture just for a minute. A minute. This is really an academic objection that most people have. It's an intellectual wrestling match. It's a uh, knowledge base. Give me the facts, the figures. Let, show me something that I can trust and rely. It's the authenticity of scripture. And so first, let me tell you about the structure of the Bible that you hold or that you click through on your device. This structure is of the Bible, 66 books total. Two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament, you could see or understand better in the word covenant. Somebody say covenant. covenant. There's an older covenant and now a new covenant. The, the old covenant is a collection of writings that are 39 books. The new covenant or the New Testament that we hold is 27 books. There are seven types of literature found in the pages of the Bible. Seven. Biography. Just the story of people, the reality, so-and-so begat so-and-so. They lived here. They were king this long. They did this deed. And then this happened. Biography. Historical biographies. It has, two uh, prescriptive literature. 
prescriptive. In other words, it's prescribing some things on how you should live and interact and live and believe and approach. Think of the uh, New Testament epistles, the writings of Paul and John and and, uh, Peter, right? Like these writings that are prescribing to you how to live out the way of Jesus, to live in a God-honoring way. They are prescriptive in their literature. Uh, Another type of literature found in the Bible is lamentations, laments, books like Lamentations, (laughs) Habakkuk, and some of the Psalms that we read. There's legal code and covenant treaty for those of you who like legal, official, black and white documents that's in there. You'll find wisdom literature, poetic literature, and prophetic literature. Most, if not all, of prophetic literature is spoken in a way that is more metaphoric than literal. In fact, the the main prophetic book in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And many people start to interpret that book incorrectly when we start taking that book literally when it was meant to be metaphoric. And we're going to get into some interpretation of things later on. I'm not going to dive deep into the book of Revelation, although some of you would be like, yes, finally. No, not finally, but I'll give you some resources in later weeks, maybe. The book of Revelation can't mean something to us today that it didn't mean to the original audience then. Microchips. They had no category for that. The principle behind some of those things maybe do exist still and are applicable for us today. But when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, we need to understand the majority of it is metaphor, it's pictures. And the key to unlocking those pictures, I believe, is found in the Old Testament because you always use scripture to interpret scripture. And it's important to understand when you're reading the Bible, the type of literature that you're reading. You don't want to read biography and think that it's prescriptive, right? When it says Judas went and hung himself, that is not prescriptive, friends. And everybody said amen, Amen. right? Like you have to understand the difference of what you're reading, right? If you're reading a biography and it's saying so-and-so had so many wives, it's informing you of what it was. It's not recommending that you have multiple wives. Please, for the love of all. It's a trap. Don't do it. (laughs) Understanding the literature that you're reading definitely helps, but that's part of the beauty of the collection that we have in front of us. But let's talk a little bit about the validity of these writings. There are many internal evidences that the Bible is truly the word of God found within the Bible. Things like unity. What do I mean by that? I mean, even though it is 66 individual books, written on three different continents in three different languages over a period of approximately 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors who pen it, who came from all sorts of walks of life and understanding. The Bible remains one elaborate and unified story of God's work of redemption known in the man Jesus. Think about the prophetic elements of the book. Now, I'm going to address this later in in about four weeks in a little bit more detail, statistically even, 
talking about the very prophecies found all in Scripture as to why we can believe it. But, but, but think about it. The Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies relating to future of nations and cities and people. Unlike the prophecies such as those of Nostradamus, biblical prophecies are extremely detailed. There is no other religious book with the detail of predictive prophecy than, the, than that of the Bible. We could also take time to address some of the external reasons that we see the validity of Scripture. Things like impact. There is, a, there is um, a, no more subjective evidence for sure, but, but it, it should not be wholly discounted when we think about how the Bible has transformed countless lives through the ages. We can't take that away. In fact, if I were to ask you by a show of hands, how many of you have had your life impacted in some way because of the Bible, you would see hands go up all over the place. We all are witnesses of the evidence of the fact that there is something powerful and impactful about these scriptures. You have to think about the integrity of the authors from an external perspective for validity. The fact that they were willing to die, often excruciating deaths for what they believed and testified. These were ordinary yet honest men who truly believed that God had spoken to them. Their record does not exalt themselves, but shows many pictures of weakness, yet they wrote it down. Think about it. They wrote stories and accurately described their failures for generations to look at and learn from. Most of us are unwilling to tell our children of our failures in our teen years for sake they might repeat them. But these men gave their lives for the reality and the integrity of the story of what really happened, much to their own peril. Then you look at the, the sheer external factor of the resilience of this book and these writings. The Bible has suffered more vicious attacks and attempts to destroy it than perhaps any collection of teachings in history. From uh, Diocletian to the communist dictators, to atheist college professors and armchair agnostics, the Bible has withstood and outlasted all of its attackers, and it's still today the most widely published book in the world. Throughout time, skeptics have regarded the Bible as mythological, perhaps. But archaeology has confirmed that it is indeed historical, not mythological. These are evidences to why we can hold the Bible with a little bit of confidence and say it's valid. It has a place in our story and in our lives. Then you take the very reality of the manuscripts and the number of copies of manuscripts. In fact, when you're uh, trying to judge a book of antiquity and its validity, whether or not it should be trusted or not, you look at the number of accurate historical copies of the originals. There is not a single figure in history that we study that has more authentic manuscripts than the person of Jesus. Not a single person in history, not Alexander the Great, not any other person, not other any emperor, no other time in history has more writings in antiquity than that of Jesus. In his book, The Problem of God, author Mark Clark says it like this. He says, many people believe that the Bible has been mishandled 
and that its original message and content has been changed, lost, and even manipulated. But historians tell us that its original message content and content has, been, has not been, uh, they say that it's been handled and changed and manipulated. Historians tell us, rather, that the Bible is actually one of the most, if not the most, reliable and credible documents from all of antiquity. One of the reasons it has such credibility as an ancient document is that it has largely remained the same throughout history. It remains unchanged. The ancient Jews who wrote and copied the Bible cared so much about the content of each manuscript that you can compare two copies of the same passage copied 500 different uh, 500 years apart from each other, and they found it complete, in completely different geographic areas, and they are still virtually identical. This is something that um, historians will refer to as a tenacity of the text. Tenacity of the text. I heard this illustration recently. Uh, as it relates to this, let's say that there's something really important that I wanted to tell some friends, some friends who live in different states and one who lives in another country, and there are 10 of them. And I write this letter one by one because I don't believe in copy and pasting and technology, and so I handwrite these letters. Write one letter, go to the next one, write the same letter again and again. It's, it's me, I, I, it's from my heart, it matters to me, and I write these 10 letters, send it all across the land to these people. And then when they come back together and they were to look at them all side by side, all 10 of them lay them out, they might find that there are some, uh, there's an apostrophe missing from a word or there's an incorrect apostrophe in a word or there's some grammar errors in uh, kind of where there should be a comma, there isn't a comma. There should be a hyphen and instead it's a semicolon or, or what, because some of us aren't really gifted in grammar. And, but, but we have an important message to proclaim and so we're not trying to do that. We're just, we're just getting it out. But when you lay them out side by side, the reality that each error would be in the same place is highly improbable. And because the errors are in such different places, that even a few words, a word might be flipped around and I had a dyslexic moment here or there. The content of the letters remains true and trustworthy. And there's a, a tenacious nature about that. That is what they have done with the historical documents of antiquity, of the copies of the scriptures, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of all of these copies found by archaeologists. And it's amazing. It's amazing, amazing, because the Bible is something that had such care and concern for it that people took great care to copy it exactly as they could. Which means that are there some errors when you compare manuscript to manuscript? Yeah, there are. Pastor, did you just say the Bible is not infallible? No, that's not what I said at all. Oh, hear me. The Bible doesn't contain lies or fables. The meaning of these errors are very, very insignificant. Let me tell you what I mean. There's, there, there's one uh, person who's kind of on the forefront of kind of leading the charge in academia and agnosticism uh, by the name of Bart Ehrman, who points out that the New Testament documents alone, that there are some 400,000 variants, what he calls errors, a significant number that he would call them as errors. Well, one key reality is that this, that the whole process 
of transmission from the oldest to the newest is only less than 2% different in size. In other words, when you do the word count, it's less than 2% from the oldest to the newest, a less than 2% difference in size, indicating by all academic standards that this is a trustworthy transmission and a stable process. 75% of the variations that he claims are, are errors in the New Testament, 75% of them are variance in spelling differences. There's an S missing, the E and the R, or there's a, a squiggle and a smudge, something that makes it, I wonder, did they spell that right? 24% of things that they name are meaningful. In other words, the, the variations in spelling, they, historians and, and, and authors, they're like, no, that's actually not a valid. So 75% of the errors, they say, are, you know what, that's actually not, that's not anything, it's just the human element of it. 24% they say are meaningful errors, but they're not viable to discredit in the translation difference. What do I mean? Well, where a word can mean something as it's spelled, that would change a meaning here and there, but they cannot hold to the consensus of the text or it has a cross-reference like in the gospel. In other words, they would offer the parallel, the answer. In other words, let me give you this example. The phrase Jesus Christ may be in one copy in one gospel in another copy, in another gospel, it may be listed as Christ Jesus. And that is considered within the 20% of these errors that they would say are viable. It's simply a matter of, instead of Jesus Christ, it's Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus, our Lord. If in Mark's gospel, there were, uh, where there are 89 verses uh, Jesus is referred to in a pronoun form. That, there's 89 of those found in Mark 6.31 through Mark 8.26. You can understand how the scribe might be tempted to insert the name of Jesus instead of the word him. Right? Is him Jesus? Is Jesus him? Yeah. Because when you cross-reference and you look at it, that's 89 different times where, where they did that. Now, why, did, why was that even the case? Why didn't they write Jesus all the time or him all the time? Why the difference? Well... Think of it like this. The Greek form did not require that the pronoun be so named as later Romance languages required. In other words, the antecedent rules didn't apply in the early manuscripts in Greek. So it didn't require that we clarified who we're talking about, about him or they. So the older copies or the, the more recent copies, you see the word Jesus substituted for him and some of these things. Those are the kinds of, quote-unquote, errors we're talking about, friends. Those are the kinds of things that are like, oh, there's a little discrepancy. I don't have a problem with that. I believe that the Scripture is the Scripture that God gave us, that it is inspired and it is useful in our lives. That all throughout the story of God, you are going to find one consistent theme. God has a desire and a will and a plan, and he partners with humanity to accomplish it. And that's how we got the Bible. The Bible is both divinely inspired and humanly transmitted from person to person. It, it's written. That's consistent with the story of God. God has spoken and the rest of us are adding commentary. Commentary. 
That leads us to understand, and, and here's one last understanding as it relates to the, the errors within the text. Let me say it like this. In 1% of all manuscript differences, there is both a meaningful and a viable difference. And this is the subject of textual analysis that's carried on today. 1% one, 1 of the 24. That's 1% of 24%. That they say is both meaningful and, and, and has some viability to it. And, and they're, they're still articulating. Which means... I'm not good at the math and the percentages, but less than 1% of the entirety of Scripture contains those that are meaningful and variable. Here's my, even if it is a full 1% of the whole thing, can I just say that 99% of it is still worth submitting your life to? That's right. There we go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Still trustworthy. Still something to anchor your soul and your hope to. Leads us to the next kind of objective within this idea is like, what about all of the translations? There are a ton. I want to show you a chart to help us understand these different translations. Now, translators of the Bible, we're not changing what the Bible means. They're writing it and using scholarship to bring about some differentiations and to help the reader understand what was written. Because the Bible was written in three original languages, none of which we speak in America on a consistent basis. So English Bible translators are trying to take language of antiquity and metaphor and simile and, and, and run on sentences and bad grammar and create a way for you to read and understand with you not being a prolific reader of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Thank the Lord. So you see on this chart, that the English Bible translation has this comparison. Now, in your sermon notes online, there is a link to this blog post where I got this. It is a great, worthy read, and you can see this chart more zoomed and up close for those of you who need it. There, there are kind of three kinds of translations that we have in the Bible today. We have what's called word for word. That's on the far left as you look at it. You have thought for thought. That's where they, where they take the thought that's being communicated and present it in a... In a as close to thought as what was meant by the authors. And then you have paraphrases. This is where they take from the original and they just rework it entirely to put it in a different language to kind of freshen it up. Those of the paraphrase are perhaps better for devotional, not a great for study. Great devotionally, great add-ons, great additional perspective, but not great to, to study. And there are some on this list that I would uh, think are better than others based on how the scholarship came about. There's one that's more popular today known as the Passion Translation. Uh, my pastoral recommendation is that you use that very, very sparingly because of the academics that were kind of missing in the process of how it came, came about. It's not yet been proven out all the way and how it came about. But you can see on the far, far left, the most trustworthy are word for words. They're the most accurate. It's word for word where you have this interlinear, where you have English translations and you have like the original language. And the English doesn't read like great sentence structure because they're really just taking it word in word and sometimes changing the order to help you understand. But that's really kind of like that. That's, that's not a, a Bible that most of us would own or give as a gift. But you see in here a whole list of all the different translations and where they're at on the spectrum and what they do and, and the reading level that they are written and, tran and translated into. 
Friends, there is a difference between interpretation and translation. There's a difference. And it's important that we think about those nuances and those differences. But when it comes to the authenticity of Scripture, we need to remember that these things are trustworthy and, and true. Let me read you this uh, Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, and then I'll spend just two minutes on this last objection. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says this. Starting in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he, he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There is a trustworthiness to the authenticity of scripture. Men believed that they heard from Lord and they were willing to write it out for us. I don't believe that the men who wrote the scripture were in some transcendent, euphoric state. In other words, it's not like they were taken over by the Holy Spirit and their eyes were closed and they were just magically writing words so it had no human component. No, I, I believe that they were men who had heard a message and were given information and saw eyewitnesses of what occurred in Jesus and were faithful to write out what they saw. And the Spirit breathed his life onto it. It is true. Many people come to Scripture and we have this wrestling, this intellectual, academic, can I trust the Bible? Is it authentic? I believe that it is. And I believe the evidence is overwhelming that it is. And if you'll read some of the resources that I listed on your page and you'll go dive into them on your own, I believe in your own study, those of you that are skeptical in your own heart and mind and wrestling with some of your own questions, you're going to find, and I believe come to the similar conclusion that, that indeed the scripture is authentic and something that we can trust, that what we have is trustworthy, is something that we need and can understand and the story is accurate for us. That's not the only objection that people have. The other objection people have is the authority of Scripture. Does the Scripture have authority over my life? Does the Scripture need to be held in such a way that I orient my life to what it says? Or is it so old and outdated and doesn't understand our progressive, so good, progressed Western thought that we can throw out the parts? John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. 
which already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word, don't miss this, was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Jesus is the Word. He put on flesh. He came. His name is Jesus. What do we celebrate at Christmas? The coming of Jesus. Divinity stepping out of eternity into humanity to live among us and show us not only a new covenant, but reveal the story and reality of who the Father in heaven is and giving us some understanding on how we can better relate and follow our Father who is in heaven. Jesus came for that reason. He was in the beginning. He is known as the Word. God the Son put on flesh. He came not just to tell us about the Father, but to also give us His Spirit and to live out the message of God's covenant. Friends, this authority of Scripture is not really an academic one. It's not really a, a wrestling of I understand it or I don't understand it. This objection to the authority of Scripture is a personal my own will objection. Because even if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that 99% of this is absolutely trustworthy and true and it means what it says, you would still have to deal with the reality that you don't like what it says. And I don't like what it says. And it's really a matter of am I going to play God or am I going to follow God? Jesus said it like this at the end of his time here on earth in Matthew 28. He said, I have been given all authority. Who's got the authority? You or Jesus? Jesus said he's got it. He's the word. He's the truth. He's the life. At the end of the day, this understanding of the authority of scripture comes down to Jesus has the authority. He gave it to his disciples to transcribe and to write out his teachings. Jesus didn't write any of the Bible. He lived it, he taught it, and he deputized his disciples and the apostles to write it out for us. He is the authority. He is the authority of the scripture. He told us to teach it and to obey it. Don't just teach it to know it and understand it, but you've got to teach it and obey it, which requires a submission of the, to the authority of Jesus. And that's the decision we all have to make. Am I going to surrender the authority of my life to Jesus, or am I going to still hold on to that authority and try and play God with my life? Most of us, when we come to the Bible and we want to dissect it and throw it out, it really is an issue of our own will that has yet to be broken and bent and surrendered and submitted to the ultimate authority who is Jesus Christ. That's really at the heart of the issue. See, because when you recognize and realize that scripture is not only authentic and trustworthy, it has some authority for our lives but only if we choose to submit it, realizing the authority of Scripture means that we now have to do something with it. It means either we submit to it or we rebel against it. Your children, 
they either obey you or they don't obey you. There's not really any middle ground, is there? Oh, they like to say that there's a middle ground. But it's either they obeyed or they didn't obey. Friends, when it comes to the authority of Scripture, either we give Jesus our allegiance, which is just simply our belief with demonstration, or we live in mutiny against him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Are we going to get it perfect every time? No, that's why he gave us the Spirit to lead us, to guide us. This is why he gave us forgiveness. The question is, will I surrender and let Jesus be king in my life, be authority in my life, allow him who is the word to rule and reign in my life, or am I going to rule and reign in my life? You can't be a citizen in both kingdoms, your kingdom and God's kingdom. It's one or the other, friends. This is often the wrestling that is the deepest within us. As we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, would you just stand, if you would, in place with me? And if you have the communion elements with you, would you go ahead and just begin to open those up right here in this space? Top layer has the bread, and go ahead and open up the bottom layer. We do this all at the same time before we take a moment and pause because it's loud and annoying and takes a PhD of a child to open it. I get it. For those of you that are at home, I, I hope that you're able to participate with us. We would invite you. You're a follower of Jesus. This is what we do week in and week out. Why? Because we have to remind ourselves that we're not the authority in our lives. But there is a man who we've given our allegiance and our surrender to, and he is the authority in our lives. Let's bow for a minute, would you? Just close your eyes right where you're at. Would you simply ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? How can I practice scripture this week? There's a lot of intellectual and academic things we talked about, but the heart of it for us is always about our will. Holy Spirit, we're here. Will you speak to us today? Father, as we come to the table, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the fixer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross endured despising and shame so that we could walk in union with you, Heavenly Father, so that we could be united with you in your story of redemption, to partner with you in bringing heaven into our earth. God, we confess we don't get it right all the time. God, I confess that often my will overrides your word in my life. And I repent today. We repent today. May your word override our will this week. We thank you for Jesus whose body was broken and blood was poured out so that we could have union with you. 
So Lord, today as we take the bread and we drink the juice, would you draw us close to you? Would you fix the brokenness in our hearts? Would you forgive us of our own rebellion and mutiny? And help us walk in faithful fidelity and allegiance to you this week. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. And now the juice. Lord, I pray a blessing and pronounce this benediction over us today. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine on us and be gracious to us. May he lift up his countenance towards us and give us his peace. We thank you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.